This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, welcome and welcome back to many of you. This is the second week of the LGBT mini med school. And tonight we have a couple speakers. Um, we talked a little bit about research last week, and uh, we're going to learn about a research study here at UCSF called Pride. Uh, and then we're going to move into two talks that are sort of uh, talking about violence in the LGBT community. And I think uh, many of us in the LGBT community certainly remember stories in the media and also our own personal stories. And so we'll hear about um, uh, hate crimes on college campuses, and we'll also hear about intimate partner violence in the LGBT community. I'm going to ask again, uh, the same as last week, I'm going to ask the speakers to introduce themselves and to tell the, um, you a little bit about themselves and the work that they do, and then they're going to move in. Again, because we're being um, filmed, we're going to sort of go through the presentations, and after each presentation, we'll stop and give you a chance to ask questions and then try to save a little bit of time at the end for more of a sort of summary discussion. Sound good? Okay. Um, so come on up, and Great. I'll have you introduce yourself. All right. Well, hello, everyone. I'm really honored and thrilled to be here. My name is Juno obidin Malver. I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist, and I work here at UCSF as well as at the San Francisco VA. I'm also one of the co-directors of the PRIDE study, where we're striving to understand the health needs of sexual and gender minorities. Um, I have no real disclosures. This is not yet a really profitable area, um, but if you, if you know a way, let me know. Um, uh, Thread Research did help us develop some of the technology that I'll be showing you. So in addition to my professional title, I also like to say that I'm a cisgender lesbian woman. I use she, her, and hers pronouns, and it, this is important because this study that I'm going to be telling you about is not just about, uh, it's not a purely academic interest for me. Um, I'm part of the community that I'm interested in, and so that's driven a lot of what I do. And um, our research is really based on thinking about sexual and gender minorities. So um, this, you know, mini-med school is called the LGBT mini-med school, and we framed our research as being about sexual and gender minorities, recognizing that LGBT or LGBTQIAA, there's more and more um, identities that really fall for me, under this um, minorities rubric and, and thinking about it more dynamically that way um, as people have more um, visibility about their various identities. And so I'll be using that term. And I also slip into LGBT also. Um, I'm going to make the assumption since last week you talked a lot about the basic information. I'm not going to go into population estimates other than to say there are a lot of LGBT and sexual and gender minority people in the U.S and in the world, and we're just not counting. We don't have good estimates, but we know it's probably in the 20 millions or more, um, kind of, if you look at all of the estimates together. And we know, and I think you covered this last week, that there's a persistent experience of discrimination across um, sexual and gender minorities. And what's also known is that discrimination leads to poor health. That's pretty well established, both within sexual and gender minorities and outside of um, that particular experience. And so um, part of the thinking, and this is with my doctor and researcher hat on, is how do we bring visibility to that poor 
poor health so that we can turn that around and go towards optimal health. And one of the problems is that there's a real lack in research of visibility of sexual and gender minorities. So no real national surveys from the government or other people have been taking a very comprehensive look into sexual and gender minority health. So the census doesn't collect baseline demographics, health interview surveys, um, big health studies really aren't collecting comprehensive sexual orientation and gender identity data. And that's starting, but it's really in its infancy. And the, the institutes of medicine recognized that this was a real problem in 2011, actually, and said that the relative lack of population-based data presents the greatest challenge to describing the health status and health-related needs of LGBT people, which is pretty profound for the government and the Institute of Medicine to say. And so what they were really recognizing was that health disparities, um, the extent and um, depth of those were really unknown, and that's partly because health workers and researchers really weren't asking about sexual orientation and gender identity, which feeds forward to a lack of sexual and gender minority health data, and so then those disparities persist, and we get this cycle that keeps going around and around. And so me and my colleagues really wanted to intervene on that cycle, and so we de uh, developed the PRIDE study. So PRIDE, if you're at all in the world of academia, every study has to have an acronym. We liked PRIDE for what it was in and of itself, but it does stand for Population Research in Identity and Disparities for Equality. And our primary sort of driving question, it's not so much as a research question, but almost like a mission, is how does being a sexual and or, there should be an and in there, and or gender minority influence physical, mental, and social health. So really thinking comprehensively about health. And we said in order to address this question, we really have to think broadly, so nationally, which hasn't been done before. Most um, LGBT health studies have been really regional or um, you know, done in bars or you know, in various very focal settings. Um, we wanted to make it easy for people. Um, most of the population in the U.S. is online at this point, and what that did was allow, what that does is allow us to overcome the fact that a lot of LGBT people have challenges in coming to healthcare providers or health researchers, unfortunately, because of persistent um, discrimination in healthcare and research settings. Um, or concerns about the possibility of that. And we really wanted to follow and partner with people over decades to really see how health is changing and um, to really understand the influence of being a sexual and gender minority um, and or gender minority over one's lifetime. So the inclusion criteria is very broad. Um, being an SGM, being at least 18 years of age and living in the United States, de facto, um, everyone in the study right now needs to speak English because all our materials in English, we are working on going to multilingual. We're also working on bringing the age down in coordination with our institutional review board down to either 12 or 13, um, which poses a few challenges, but we're working on it. Um, we recruit electronically and through community health-focused organizations, um, our community partners, health providers, a whole bunch of online social media, and we're in, we have two phases to the study, a community listening phase where we're really listening to the community and having sexual and gender minority people 
help us propose and prioritize research questions. That's the phase that we're in right now. And then really starting longitudinal data collection. So at every step of the way, we've really tried to involve sexual and gender minority people. Everybody actually on our core research team um, identifies as a sexual and or gender minority, um, but also through our partnership. And what we found is when we asked people, why might you want to participate in something like this, most people said, 76% said that they wanted to contribute to health knowledge just uh, altruistically and to inform health care was the other one. So big motivations. So in terms of our engagement today, um, looking at these three numbers, so in-network means just anybody who's kind of been at all on our Facebook page, Twitter, um, sort of downloaded our apps as in engaged, um, as, or those app downloads are below there, and consented and enrolled. And I should stop and say, right now we're on an app. I cut out that slide in the, in the interest of brevity. So right now we're on iPhone, we have an app. Um, in phase two, we'll be going to a web-based uh, dynamic platform that will be accessible from any web-enabled device, also available in paper and telephone. Um, so we have um, 16,000 people who have been uh, consented, enrolled, and filled out our basic demographics. And then another, um, over it's actually over 3,500 conversations where people are posting the research questions that they want us to address and then many more replies and people can upvote and downvote various um, subjects that they'd like us to focus on. And this is in coordination with our community engagement arm, which um, is composed of almost 50 organizations around the country that are health organizations, advocacy, and service organizations um, where we're really working with them to try to make sure that our um, population on the study is diverse, uh, that we're meeting um, not just in terms of demographic diversity but also regional diversity, so rural, urban um, areas that are far away from UCSF and medical centers, um, and uh, that's been very exciting. Um, so how can you support Pride? Um, what's your role? You can take pride, become a participant. If that's relevant for you, you can let people know about it, you can support it. We have a dollar sign, but also volunteers. There's other things going on. Um, the way to learn more is you can actually text us. You can text pride study to the short code 74121. What that gives you is a link that goes right to the app store where you can download the app. Fortunately, our app right now is only accessible for iPhone. We're fixing that with our web-based portal, which will be out in the next few months. Um, you can also visit pridestudy.org, learn more about the project there. And then there's many different ways to support Pride. There's ways to sign up as a volunteer um, there. So this is certainly not <laughs> um, just the doing of one person. We have a very big, awesome research team, as well as our community partners. So thanks for your attention. Um, and I apologize for a little bit of the shortness of breath in racing through this. Um, so thank you. You're doing great. <laughs> okay, I'm just signing up, so it's not very... Cool. I can't believe I haven't already signed up, but... Well, thanks for signing up. <laughs> All right. So I think, well, are we going to do questions at yeah, the end? Yeah, so anybody have questions about the Pride study, about signing up, anything? Do you have any results so far? 
We do. I mean, they're preliminary. So we have demographic results um, just about the diversity of who is is signing up and being involved. Um, and then we just released in July three surveys around um, mental health, physical health, and social health. Um, we're analyzing that data right now. It's very interesting. There's, for example... Uh, preliminarily, this is unclean data, but something like 25% of our um, group has reports of asthma. It's very high rates. Um, high rates of you know, mental health experiences with mental health providers and diagnoses. Um, you know, there's just we ask about a whole bunch of different things. So it's all it's all very unclean data because it's still coming in right now. But um, we're starting to map out some really important health outcomes. Um, and for us, it's really almost pilot data to help us really um, develop a, a very robust longitudinal cohort that'll launch when we have our web platform. Other questions? Great. Great. Oh, sure. Um, do you know when you're going to be able to have any Spanish-speaking um, or Spanish language available? Yeah. The short answer is no. We're working. We're waiting to find out if we're. Oh, sorry. Right, right, right. The question was when we'll we'll have Spanish. Um, and I'll say also our third language would be um, Chinese. Um, so. I don't have a timeline on that. We're working really hard to get the funding to build um, because it's not just, as many people know, it's not just translation. We need to have um, real cultural competency around um, and linguistic uh, competency around that. So uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of an undertaking. No, I mean I was just that's almost like a teaser number that I'm just putting out. Um, I ha we have it's really like we haven't really looked at it yet. We're just starting to clean that data right now. Um, historically, there's a lot of reports of higher smoking uh, among sexual and gender minority people. We also ask about smoking. We actually ha I haven't done the cross tabulations yet um, to see about that, but those are the types of things that we'll be looking at. Um, and also, you know, location uh, in terms of rural urban, how does it reflect to smoking, um, which age groups in there are smoking more, those kinds of things, or have asthma more. Those, we'll be doing all of that kind of fun stuff. One more question. Are you choosing um, to translate in Chinese because that's kind of the general of what we do here in San Francisco, or because I'm thinking about other cultures that perhaps have a higher rate of um, LGBTQ than the Chinese population? Right. So that's it's a really interesting question, which was, are we choosing to um, go to Chinese because that's sort of what we do in San Francisco versus um, some other reason where, because there might be other populations that have more LGBT people than um than Chinese. So um, we did it based on national demographics. And if you look at the top three um, languages um, that are monolingual alternate languages from English, that that's where we get the top three. And that was the basis of it. And I think to your second point, we just don't actually know. There's no good population-based data to say necessarily that in certain geographic or ethnic communities there would be more or less um, LGBTQ representation. So, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Good evening, buenas noches. My name is Clint Jaramillo, and I have the honor and pleasure of serving as the director of the LGBT Resource Center here at UCSF. Prior to my post here, I serve as the associate director of the LGBT Resource Center at UC Santa Barbara. Um, and I am a social worker by training. I did my graduate degree at the University of Chicago, and I practiced as a social worker and a therapist uh, for a few years in Chicago. Um, this topic um, is um, not only of interest, but was my first career um, as a service provider. And um, most of the information that you'll hear today from me um, is secondary research, um, some information from GLSEN and some information from the CDC. Um, but I'm going to root it in my own experience when I worked in Chicago as a social worker and a therapist working with LGBTQ youth of color particularly. Um, but prior to, to get to talk about caring for LGBTQ youth, um, I do want to talk a little bit about um, just my own experience navigating the field of, of working with queer communities um, as someone who identifies as Latino, um, first generation, and also someone from another country. I was, from, I was born in Ecuador, um, and I came to the United States out of at the age of 12, and I had to learn English as a second language, um, having already learned Spanish as my first language. Um, and most of my experience as, as a queer person of color really influenced the way in which I navigated college and navigated um, my graduate school career, and now I, I have become um, a LGBT director. Um, I also want to um, spend some time kind of just... Um, going, just feeling um, and, and, and bringing, bringing this conversation to the room about what happened in Orlando and the ways in which LGBTQ folks um, continue to experience not only violence but discrimination um, in this country. Um, as someone who identifies as Latino, um, the tragedy that happened in Orlando really, really affected me. Um, and it have affected many of my colleagues and uh, my students here at the university. Um, but I really wanted to um, just come to this conversation from a point of humility and being able to um, understand that um, when we talk about LGBTQ identities, we really need to talk about the complexities of many um, social identities. Um, and particularly when we're going to be talking about LGBTQ youth, we really need to look at um, understanding that um, sexuality doesn't exist in a, val in a vacuum and gender identity doesn't exist in a vacuum. That when we are really looking to provide services to our LGBTQ youth um, and to our young people who are navigating um, the United States as a sexual minority, uh, we really need to bring into um, our own understandings that um, intersectionality is very crucial in order for us to provide culturally competent and congruent uh, care. I know that many of you have heard the It Gets Better campaign, right? That after you leave high school um, and you leave this space that um, continues to put a lot of harm for LGBTQ youth, that it gets better. Uh, but for LGBTQ youth, does it really get better? Um, I like to um, 
share with you that I am a Rutgers alumni. I graduated in 2008 from, from the university, um, and Tyler Clemente, who is um, no longer with us, committed suicide. Um, he jumped off of, a, of the George Washington Bridge, and um, for the last five or so years, we have heard that there has been a lot of violence um, experienced by LGBTQ youth in high schools and in colleges. Um, so I'm going to read something real quick that I wrote um, so, um, when this happened um, with Tyler Clemente. The documentation and hypervisibility of tragic death among members of the LGBT student population became prevalent in the United States in the last five years. Several events even made national news. In September 9, 2010, Billy Lucas, a 15-year-old student from Greensburg, Indiana, hanged himself after a month of bullying at his school, including classmates telling Lucas to kill himself because of his sexual orientation. Later that year, on September 19th, Seth Walsh, a 13-year-old student from Tehachapi, California, hanged himself after a month of bullying at his elementary school. On September 22nd, Tyler Clemente, an 18-year-old Rutgers University first-year student, jumped off the George Washington Bridge after his roommate revealed a video of Clemente with another uh, man. A few days later, after that incident, Harrison Brown, a 15-year-old young boy from Rand, California, took his life after being tormented by his peers. Asher Brown, a 13-year-old from Austin, Texas, shot himself after suffering bullying and physical abuse by his peers on September 29th. And all of this happened in 2010. The New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Rolling Stone magazines have all featured cover stories from 2010 to 2012 just in the epidemic of bullying in high schools and in colleges. My own experience working in Chicago, um, I worked in Sand High School, which is a, is a high school in the northern, northern part of, of, of Chicago. Um, my own experience working with youth in, in that particular area um, not only informed the, the work that I was doing, but it really made me aware that the things that I experienced when I was growing up are, were still happening, even though things were getting better or it does get better after school. Um, I also like to point out that during um, all of this, um, some folks have coined the glee effect, right? Many of you were aware that glee kind of came in, in the um, early 2000s and it kind of became this mass media ex um, explosion that actually allowed folks to really be translated and transported and learning more about LGBTQ youth. Um, and even though a lot of things, um, not only in popular, in popular media, um, but also TV shows and movies, we're really centering the conversation of how do we treat LGBTQ youth. Something that I uh, was continuing to see in the interactions that I had with my students in high schools was that something was not right and something continued to be an issue. Schools are unsafe and unwelcoming for the majority of LGBT students. According to Glesson, 65% um, of students heard homophobic remarks like words like fag or dyke frequently or often. There's a high number of those who were interviewed. And this information was taken from the um, study that was in 2013. Another um, 
very drastic statistic is that 30% of students who identify as part of the LGBT community uh, miss at least one day of school in the past month because they felt unsafe and uncomfortable. Um, something that I can share with you is that my experience working in Chicago public schools, and in particular my school, most of the students that were not attending schools and that were skipping school were students who identify as part of the LGBT community, um, and that is why we decided to start a gay straight alliance. 85% uh, were verbally harassed in the past year or so. Um, it got to the point that some of my students were not feeling unsafe, that they, has to imp- they had to implement a policy where uh, students that continue to say homophobic or transphobic remarks uh, were going to be penalized. And that's something that Chicago Public Schools is trying to figure out how they're going to be creating um, policies to not only... Um, Say, uh, make sure that our students are being safe, but continue to have conversations about diversity in the classroom. One of the things that I also want to um, point out to you is that um, of the folks that answer this um, the survey, 56% of them said that they experienced discriminatory school policies and practices. Many of these LGBT students reported that their schools restricted same-gender relationships, uh, which is something that we haven't seen throughout the entire um, or the last five uh, to ten years, um, where there are some schools that do not allow um, LGBT relationships to not only flourish, but even be permitted in the premises. One of the things that I really want to point out is how hostile schools' climates negatively affect LGBTs, LGBT students' educational success and well-being. Um, we know that folks who are continue to be to feeling unsafe and unwelcome in their educational settings, that they're going to have lower GPAs, less likely to plan to go to college, and they will continue to have a lower self-esteem. Um, Something that you should be aware of is that there has been a rise of these gay-straight alliance across the United States that allows students to not only feel safe and secure in their schools, but actually allows for allyship and for conversations about diversity in the classrooms. Um, there's about 50% um, about 50% of the people that participated in this, in this survey um, indicated that they had a um, GSA at their schools. I really wanted to kind of just have this conversation about <laughs> the bathrooms. Um, and I think that's something that is not only being experienced in the schools, um, but it's kind of being experienced in several states that are um, continuing to discriminate against um, our LGBT community, particularly our trans or genderqueer and a gender nonconforming community. Um, I wanted to also just let you know that this picture is actually from California, um, where recently we um, had um, to have conversations about um, policies in um, not only restroom and, and facilities, but um, how do we continue to um, provide safe spaces for our LGBTQ youth? You should know that in 2015, so in August of this year, um, I'm sorry, yeah, August of this year, um, the CDC released the first ever nationally representative study in the health risk of U.S. LGB high school students. To understand more about behaviors that can contribute to negative health outcomes among LGB students. 
This new data offer insight into the health risk of approximately 1.3 LGB high school students to highlight the need for accelerated action to protect the health and well-being of our queer youth. The CDC analyzes data from the 2015 National Survey plus um, 25 other state surveys and kind of compiled this comprehensive um, results um, that allowed us to um, understand substantially what's going on with our LGBTQ youth. Um, and I'm going to be able to share some of this information with you. So according to the CDC and this report in August of 20, uh, 2016, LGB students are significantly more likely to report being physically forced to have sex as they, as they compare to their heterosexual counterparts. 18% of those who participated in the study indicated this, um, contrary to 5% of their heterosexual counterparts, which is just a huge difference, in my opinion. Um, experiencing sexual data violence, 23 percent, those who identify as LGB, um, and 9 percent of heterosexual. Experiencing physical dating, violence, 18 percent LGB, uh, as opposed to 8 percent of the heterosexual um, counterparts. And be, uh, as we mentioned before, bullying is it's a huge issue right now in, um, in high schools and, and in colleges. Um, and they actually wanted to talk about and learn more about um, bullying at school versus online. Uh, 34% um, indicated that they were bullied at school, um, those who identify as LGB, um, and 19% of those who identified as heterosexual. Um, and then something that is interesting and it's something new in, in this um, study is that they actually looked at online bullying. Um, and those who completed the, this survey indicated that 28% um, 20, of those who identify as LGBT identify being bullied, um, as opposed to 14% of heterosexual folks. The CDC indicated that um, there are LGBT students are significantly more likely to report the following. More than 40% of LGBT students have seriously considered suicide which is a huge, huge amount. 40% of LGB students have seriously considered suicide. 29% have attempted suicide during the past 12 months. And this survey was con conducted in 2015. 60% of LGB students reported feeling hopeless that they stopped doing some of their usual activities. LGB students are more up to five times more likely than other students to report using illegal drugs. Um, and when they consider um, illegal drugs, um, um, according to the CDC, it would be um, anything that they cannot buy legally at the age of 13 to um, 18. More than one in 10 LGB students reported missing schools during the past 30 days due to safety concerns. And I want to bring this, this, this is the most accurate information and most, I'm sorry, up-to-date information um, conducted by the CDC when it comes to the health of LGBT students. Um, when we, when I talk a little bit more about the rest of the um, LGBT community, um, the CDC will be able to um, produce more information about um, what are we doing in order to uh, prevent and to continue um, to provide services to our queer youth. 
I want to also spend a, a portion of this talk uh, to talk about um, one of the main issues that I saw when I was in Chicago, it was homelessness. Um, there's an estimation of 20 to 40 percent um, of, between 20 to 40 percent of homeless street youth identify as part of the LGBT community. Many leave homes or are forced to leave their homes. Um, they may be kicked out or run away to avoid violence, harassment, or pressure to undergo um, conversion therapies or anti-gay um, anti therapies. Youth may come out to families or they're actually outed accidentally, which drives them to leave their homes. Um, and one of the issues that I saw when I was working in Chicago is that um, some of the challenges of homeless youth um, who happen to be LGBT identify um, include um, housing that was not long term, the ability to obtain work, um, and then any support systems or services that were um, available to them. Um, the other issue that I saw was that there were cases where um, LGBTQ homeless youth um, we're having issues in securing house, um, housing, um, and some of these challenges led them to trade sex for money, food, shelter, um, or even drugs. Um, and not to say that this is happening to all homeless LGBTQ youth, but that's some of the characteristics and challenges of LGBTQ youth um, when they are experiencing not having a secure place to live. Now. I also want to focus that our LGBTQ youth is strong and resilient. Um, and while we see that there's a lot of issues when it comes to securing and making sure that our, our youth are remaining safe, I also want to use a strength-based approach um, where we continue to allow um, our queer youth to persevere and be resilient and resourceful um, and feel strong about their own identities. Um, I would say that about half of the students that I saw when I was working in Chicago um, were very resourceful in making sure that um, they stayed out of trouble. Um, they stayed, um, and what I mean trouble is that they went to their classrooms and their courses, that they maintain um, attendance so they could be able to advance to, a ne to the, their next uh, grade. Um, and also they found community. They found um, friends and allies throughout their high school careers um, that maintained them and kept them safe um, and allowed them to persevere through many, many hardships. Um, one of the, the stories I always that I like to share um, when I do this type of presentations is that um, as a social worker, I saw many, many, many um, families and, and youth, and um, sometimes we continue to pathologize specific types of communities, um, either African-American communities or Latino communities, uh, because um, they are they seem to be portrayed as more homophobic than other communities. Um, and for some of the communities that I worked with, particularly the Latino and African-American communities, I saw the huge support um, from their own families and their own communities. That doesn't mean that um, there's still more work to be done. Um, so I always want to share um, just anecdotes about how our queer youth um, continue to be strong and resilient um, as they navigate many, many adversities. Um, 
here is uh, just more information about resources for LGBTQ youth and families. Um, you learned about um, the Family Acceptance Project. Um, some of you may be aware of PFLAG, um, It Gets Better Project, the Trevor Project, which is a suicide prevention campaign and, and um, resource, the Gay Straight Alliance Network, and the Gay and Straight Education Network. Um, and if particularly working with trans youth, the trans youth family allies. Um, from my own experience working as a social worker um, in Chicago and now working in higher education with um, college-aged students and graduate students, um, it's, it's, I think it's, it's important that we understand that the LGBT community, particularly our youth, our youth populations, have very unique needs and, and, and um, is a very diverse population. Um, so when I work with them, I really want to make sure that um, we understand that intersectionality and that um, working with diverse populations needs to be part of the ways in which we're working with our youth. Um, I always want to um, come from a strengths breadth approach where um, we really look at not only the ways in which our youth are strong and they continue to be resilient, um, but the ways in which we also need to have uh, much, much ground and, and um, issues that we need to work on so that we continue to be um, and have a better place um, and a better ways in which we um, provide services to our LGBTQ youth. And that's all I have for you. Um, don't leave questions. <laughs> The Fenway study, uh, you know how old that was? It was a rather curious statistic at the bottom right-hand side. Uh-huh. If you can go back to that slide, I don't know this. Yeah. This one? 54% of all cases of HIV among young people aged 13 to 20, if I can read it, I'm so sorry, my glasses. Yes. Uh, during 2003 to 06, we're 10 years beyond that. Do we know when this study was done? I'd be freaked out to find out what that statistic is like. This was in 2013. Oh. This is particularly from 2013. Yes. Uh, that statistic, I mean, it's got to be so scary now. Interesting. Yes. And we know the CDC also has um, released information about um, which types of populations have the highest rates of new HIV um, infections. Um, when you look at the male population, when you looked at um, MSMs, um, Latino and African American males have the highest rates. Um, Right now, and I, I I don't have the the numbers in front of me. Yeah. yeah. Yes. In the um, CDC study, mm -hmm. you, I'm sorry if you mentioned this, but they didn't catch it not surveying the transgender community. It's just LGBT. Yes, they only did an, um, the LGB populations for students. Do you, uh, do you have any sense of why that the transgender community was not included? I don't, but. Your, your, if you can share that. They didn't ask, so the, the, sorry. Thank you. So repeat the, repeat the question. So um, the question was in the CDC study that was released um, uh, just this past year about youth, why trans was not included, the trans youth were not included. Um, the baseline surveys that those studies uh, were based on just didn't assess, they actually didn't comprehensively assess um, gender identity, um, and they didn't actually, to many of us, comprehensively assess 
sexual orientation. It was just lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Um, and so um, it's just, it was a sort of an oversight in, a, some, in some ways. They're working, partly they're working on figuring out which metrics to use, and that's sort of an evolving conversation. But they didn't, they just didn't include it. The same I'd assume would be for uh, young people, both of you can answer this, because you mentioned it earlier in your presentation as well. Um, uh, Joby, right? Juno. Juno, excuse yeah. me. That's right. Uh, uh, I find, it, you know, uh, how would we reach then young? You mentioned something earlier about going down to as young as 13 and 12 and 13, which to me is fascinating, mm -hmm. you know, that there are youth that can self-identify LGBTIQ, whatever, um, at that young, enough to be confident to assert that in a survey, which I think must be maybe a question that's got to be asked is, you know, how do we accurately reach uh, and realistically, truthfully get at students that are going to be honest and have comprehended that themselves at that young of an age, um, which is, to me, also fascinating. You know, I, I just had a question as much as it's an observation. Um, yeah. I would love to see how the CDC then tackles that because if they can overlook trans, mm -hmm. like, oh. You know, some of the observations that I saw even working with youth is that most of the folks that I saw in the high schools identify as queer, right? So they really tried to stay away from the L and the G, especially uh, communities of color. Um, so even trying to bring the, 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 the question of what queer even means, right? Um, because for some of my students, queer identified blurring sexual orientation and gender identity that allowed them to be, to exist in the margins, exist in intersectionality when you look at race and um, ethnicity, right? So even just bringing that other lens of, of really understanding what it's even what queer. My sexuality used to be to all of us back in the day. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the two-step model, maybe? Sure. Or we could do that after. In the, in the, yes. Take, take a couple of minutes and talk about it. Because um, sure. I think it, it's a well, figuring out how to ask the question sense. and then actually asking the question yeah. is a two-step process. Right. In itself. Um, so there's been very little systematic um, uh, assessment on metrics around how to assess either sexual orientation or gender identity. There are good kind of best practices. Most of those come from the clinical space and not from the research space. Different things. Um, in the clinical world, it's actually self-identification is the gold standard. Um, and so translating that for researchers where you really at some point need to boil it down to certain boxes um, to make the data intelligible has been a challenge for for very well-meaning, well-intentioned people, but we're behind the times on it. For gender identity, what's emerging as sort of the gold standard, if you will, it's still being tested um, in different settings, is a two-step model where you um, ask somebody's um, current affirmed gender identity um, and then also ask about their sex assigned at birth. Um, and when, when you ask both of those questions, so you don't just ask about gender identity, but when you ask both of those questions, you have twice the um, rate of positivity for gender minority individuals. So, for example, um, you in one sample, they found twice as many transgender individuals because many transgender individuals who we might 
from the outside identify as transgender actually use, say, I'm a man, I'm a woman, they don't acknowledge the term transgender as part of their current experience. Um, so to capture that, this two-step model is, is really helpful. Um, and that is actually the California Health Interview Surveys, the National Institutes of Health, CDC are testing those in population-based surveys now and looking at performance metrics on those and how both um, sexual and gender minorities and cisgender straight people answer those questions so that they don't get freaked out or, or, or answer them inappropriately. So, um, yeah. I was just going to point uh, to this website, the COE at UCSF on transgender health, and they have, and I'm take me a while to search around the website, but they have recommendations uh, around asking about trans identity. Um, and if you can find it, that yeah. would be great. But it's, uh, I always send people there because people who write surveys just have no idea how to ask it and then default to not asking it at all. Um, Other questions for Clint? I can look for this. Okay. You, you answer questions. Um, I guess I, I'm going to not ask a question, but make a comment. And I just really appreciate it when people talk about resilience as we stand and we talk about challenges and problems and you know issues all the time. So I really appreciate that you brought that up. So I think that's a really important thing that we all have to remember, especially when working with youth, mm -hmm. that they bring an awful lot of resilience <laughs> to us. Yes. And. Uh, and another question I asked Juno actually is, are there youth on an advisory committee for the pride study? Mm. Because the youth are really leading the way in terms of identity. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, you, me, old school person will ask a younger person about their identity and they just, you know, they <laughs> clearly feel sorry for me that I have to ask. And they sort of say, we don't really, we don't really do it that way anymore. And, you know, and it, it, they're very kind with me, but really they're saying this is this is a new era where we're defining our identity differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we're still figuring out these two-step processes and they're, they're on to something else. They are. And so I think, you know, ha making sure that we have the youth involved in whether we're doing programming or designing studies, um, I think is really important. Even for the work that I do in the, in, in the LGBT Resource Center as an administrator working in a queer center, right? This, the youth that I'm going to be seeing coming into college or even post-college are going to be totally different than the folks that I worked in the last four or five years. They're, they are coming in with new identities. There's an, a new, there's an identity every, every year. that I, I, Every time I meet with, with youth, there's something new, and, I'm just, and I feel like... I am falling behind because there's something new every every time I meet with him. Okay. Thanks Thank very you. Much. I'm Erica Monasterio. I am a family nurse practitioner and a clinical professor here um, in the uh, School of Nursing as well as in Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine. So as I was telling my co-presenters, it's a delight to not be presenting on adolescent health today and get to listen to what other people have to say. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about intimate partner violence or IPV in the LGBTQ community. Um, and I just want to start by saying just based on the number of people in the room, it is highly likely that there are survivors in the room. It is possible that there are people in the room who are currently experiencing 
um, experiencing relationship abuse or in a, in a troubled or conflictual relationship. And um, I just want to sort of give you the space. I will not be insulted if something is uncomfortable or triggering for you and you get up and leave the room. That kind of goes with the territory. So, I, you know, I think that often um, as members of the LGBT community or members of the queer community or however we choose to define ourselves, um, we sort of think it doesn't happen here. You know, that's an issue. It's a gendered issue. I think often lesbians, I know certainly lesbians of my generation, think, oh, you know, that belongs in the heterosexual world. That's not part of our world. Um, and yet um, the more we ask, the more we know about um, the incidence of, of intimate partner violence. Um, for years, we had very little data. They were small studies, and we would say, well, it's probably equivalent to um, abuse, uh, abusive relationships in heterosexual relationships um, in terms of incidents. But the latest information, and this is, um, ba- it comes from a CDC study. It's the first really very large study looking at intimate partner v- violence with um, LGBT. LGB populations, Um, I was like, wait a minute, Um, is that you can see that there are extremely high rates of reporting experiencing intimate partner violence. Um, And one of the things that's, you know, always an issue when we look at this, and you can see the definition there, this is reporting having experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner at some point in their lifetime. So this isn't even inclusive of um, people who have experienced emotional uh, violence, psychological abuse, etc. What has happened in a lot of these studies, in this particular study, um, the looked at perpetrators, but it isn't always clear who the perpetrator was. We just completed a um, study not too long ago at a school-based health center, at a number of school-based health centers looking at adolescent relationship abuse, and we found that sexual minority youth reported higher rates, but we we weren't anticipating that finding, and so we didn't ask them about the gender of the perpetrator. So we really don't know as much um, as we need to know about the dynamics of relationship abuse in um, LGBT Uh, relationships. But as you can see here, 90%, you see a very high rate of reporting among bisexual women. So this is, we're just looking at women, we'll look at men as well. But a high rate of of reporting, of experiencing relationship violence by bisexual women, but 90% of those women reported that the violence was perpetrated by male partners only. Um, For lesbian women, um, almost 70% reported having female Uh, partners who were the perpetrators of violence. For men, you can again see um, the highest rate among men who identify as bisexual, um, but again, very significant rates of reported intimate partner violence, and again, um, 79% in this study of bisexual men reported having only female perpetrators of the intimate partner violence, and um, among gay men, um, you know, close to all of them reported having only male perpetrators. And then looking at trans and gender queer people, this was not included in that research. This data is not there on a really large national study, but these are two um, pretty big studies um, done um, in the United States uh, looking at uh, IPV as reported by trans and gender queer people. And again, what we're seeing is significantly greater risk of IPV among trans and gender queer people than are among cisgender people who identify as sexual minorities. So translate to 
trans people are much more impacted even than um, lesbians, uh, gay men, and uh, bisexual people who are in cisgender, who identify as cisgender. So what are the dynamics here, and what's different and what's the same? And what we see really is the same dynamics, but very, sometimes very different manifestations. So just to quickly review, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about IPV? Well, there's the, what most people think about, which is physical violence, um, threats of harm, forceful physical behavior. Um, now, you don't have to intentionally cause injury, um, it, but you, in the end, do cause injury or property destruction. Um, then there's the issue of sexual violence, which can be forced or coerced um, sexual acts or behavior. Um, and they are really, this is not, you know, when we talk about intimate partner violence, and I'll show you the, 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 the wheel in a minute, but we're talking about, these are really dynamics that have to do with power and control. They're not about love. They're not about partnership. They're not about sexuality. Uh, they're not about desire. They're about control and power. And so these are people who are individuals who are acting out in a sexual way to exert their power and control over their partner. Um, some of the dynamics, though, that we see um, in, uh, that, are, that may not be the same between uh, in heterosexual relationships as in with same-sex partners and most particularly with trans people um, are issues around body shaming um, and vulnerability about how one feels about one's own body. Now, you certainly see that in heterosexual relationships too, but it's very salient particularly in um, trans relationships or relationships where there's a trans partner. So um, moving on uh, to very significant issues of emotional and verbal abuse, um, ridicule, intimidation, and coercion, financial abuse, um, and we'll look at some specific patterns related to that, but really controlling the partner through controlling financial and monetary resources. And then... Um, Identity abuse. And again, this is not unique to same-sex relationships um, or relationships where there is a trans partner. This um, happens um, in other relationships as well when there's um, emotional abuse or control related to um, power dynamics um, and using racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, beautyism, as well as homophobia to shame or control a partner. Um, it's, this is also inclusive of threats to out the, the partner who is being victimized. And um, for in many relationships, this can be a really big issue around control, particularly when there are children involved. Um, it can be highly threatening. So there are some patterns of abuse that we see that are specific to trans partners. So the use of offensive pronouns or refusing to use appropriate pronouns to refer to their, the trans partner, ridicule, uh, body ridicule or, or ridicule of appearance, um, telling the trans partner that they are not a, a real man or a real woman, um, ridiculing or challenging their um, identity or uh, impairing their ability to access uh, medical care or health care, um, coercing them to pursue or to not pursue um, transgender hormonal treatments, surgeries, etc. And then there are specific patterns of abuse related to HIV status. So um, the same issue of outing, but in this sense, outing or threatening to tell others um, that the individual being victimized has HIV or AIDS. 
Um, an HIV-positive abuser suggesting that he or she will sicken or die if their partner ends the relationship, so sort of emotional blackmail. Preventing the HIV-positive partner from receiving the medical care or medications that they need. Taking advantage of their poor health status. Um, assuming sole power of, uh, over their economic affairs or creating complete and utter dependency on the abuser. Um, or uh, an HIV-infected abuser um, infecting or threatening to infect a partner. So you can see with all of these issues, really what we're talking about are dynamics that are manifested in ways that are specific to the nature of the relationships in which um, the abuse is occurring. And so for any of you who are familiar with domestic violence work, work with intimate partner violence, this is the um, well-known power and control wheel. Um, this has one has been, we have ones that have been adapted to young people's relationships. This one has been adapted to um, same-sex and uh, relationships and relationships where there's a trans partner. Um, so I don't know. You can kind of see the examples here. I'm not going to um, read them to you. But really with the emphasis being on the fact that this is, uh, these are dynamics that are rooted in a need to control the partner and exert one's power. So we don't know enough. Um, we don't have enough data, and we don't provide services in appropriate ways in general. So there are a lot of barriers to seeking care for those individuals who are being victimized, um, who are experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence. And the first of those barriers um, is related to knowledge gaps. We really have an, a limited understanding of um, LGBTQ intimate partner violence. It's under-researched, um, and so there are knowledge gaps as a consequence of that. We don't know what's unique about uh, the dynamics in um, LGBTQ uh, intimate partner violence. We don't really know the health and mental health impacts of these unique factors in same-sex and uh, relationships or relationships where there's a trans partner. We actually know a fair amount in heterosexual relationships. There's a lot of documentation related to health and mental health consequences. But in our populations, not so much. Um, and there's even less data about vulnerability of trans and gender queer populations and the unique aspects um, and consequences of IPV for these populations. Um, there are problems with research questions and methodology, so Juno and, and Clint both talked a little bit about this. Um, it's difficult getting participants, and so sample sizes are often very small, um, particularly among, with um, trans populations. Um, there are a variety of definitions and measures of abusive behavior, so the que there's different questions asked in every study. So when you try and look at across studies, you know, what are the findings, how do they compare, they ask different questions, they use different um, identities um, for people to kind of pick or identify with, um, and then they define abusive behavior differently, and often they've used standardized tools from heterosexual research, and so even the manifestations that you might see in LGBTQ relationships aren't reflected in the research questions um, or the tools that are used. Um, and there's, uh, as I mentioned before, really a lack of specific information about perpetrators. So there, sometimes it's because the study has really conflated sexual identity and gender identity, and so then you can't tease it back out. So a trans person um, who identifies as female who's in a relationship with a male, so they're in a heterosexual relationship with one trans partner, um, you can't tease out that information from the way that the research is done. 
Um, and there are just, in terms of doing this research at all, there are um, so many assumptions about IPV being solely a gender-based phenomenon. I mean, in heterosexual relationships, the typical situation in adult relationships is uh, more commonly male perpetrators with female um, victims or survivors. Um, in young people's relationships, we see much more um, kind of mutual melee and 50-50 um, kind of division of labor around being abusive or or um or controlling in a relationship, um, although the means are often different. But in LGBTQ relationships, we do not know that much. And again, we find we have these findings, and then we can't go back and ask questions we didn't ask from the start. So I think one of the problems that we have in the knowledge gap is just that we need, when we're looking, when we're questioning, when we're screening, um, when we're doing research, for example, the school-based research that we did, we asked about um, youth's uh, sexual partners and their sexual identity and their gender identity, and, and, the, and we asked about their experiences of dating violence, relationship abuse, etc., but we didn't connect the dots and ask about the perpetrator, and so we end up with these findings that we're not exactly sure what to do with. Um, a next big uh, group of issues that uh, create a barrier to seeking care are stigma. Um, stigma really prevents survivors from seeking support. And this is a stigma that is universal to all survivors, but is, you know, then we have sort of the double whammies when you're a sexual minority or, or a gender minority person. Um, so it prevents survivors from seeking support, and it also prevents helping professionals from offering support because they don't think about it because they don't know how to talk about it, because they feel unsure, and so it just gets in the way. The nature of the stigma can be different as well. So, you know, LGBT stigma, both the ex explicit um, discrimination uh, and experiences that we have, as well as the implicit bias that people bring to their interactions with us, inform us to watch out to be careful, to choose our words, to choose what we disclose, um, because we have had the experience often of having a reaction that isn't what we were looking for, of not getting the support we expected, or having our problems really confounded by or, or, or um, uh, really extended by the response of, our, of, the help, of the people that we've gone to for help. Um, and this is even more impactful for bisexual and trans people. Um, and then IPV stigma in general that pretty much all survivors will endorse experiencing the, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment about the abuse, about ma remaining in a relationship that is abusive, around making choices about you know, what level you'll tolerate because of all of the issues that um, are involved in being in a relationship, getting out of a relationship. Um, there's a lot of guilt and shame and embarrassment. And the impact of, fig of stigma um, really is that f when one experiences stigma, one fears further stigma uh, being further stigmatized. And that fear really impairs trust, and it impairs our ability to seek help. And then um, the other part of that impact is the fear of being outed, that, um, you know, that information will not be kept confidential, that a remark will be made. And remember that people seek help usually from, from friends, from peers, from family members before they'll um, seek help from helping professionals. So we have a, a, a big gap in training. 
So then the third big bucket of issues um, that create barriers are the systemic inequities. Um, servants, uh, at, the, at the level of, of service systems, um, there is stigma. This is a changing landscape, but we have very uneven progress. So um, there's been some improvements for same-sex cisgender couples, less progress for transgender people. And even when individuals in a system might be open and welcoming and someone that you feel like you can connect with and talk with, um, the system itself may not be very accessible. And you may experience bias or discrimination um, at different different levels and in different interactions in the system, whether that's because someone um, tells you there's no way that your gender or name can be changed on your chart, or whether it's um, the way you're talked to or, or um, dealt with at the front desk. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. All of those things create barriers. Um, then we have the issues with the justice system. And because intimate partner violence is, is violence, it is um, often uh, violence that re- uh, meets the criteria for criminal behavior. Um, and there are legal protections. Um, these are often very hard to access for LGBTQ people. So in um, the civil court, if you're looking for a protection order, so before there's any criminal action, any criminal charges, but just the process of trying to obtain a protection order, some states actually specifically exclude LGBT relationships from um, Uh, being able to even get a protection order. Um, And some states just make are are less clear. It depends on which clerk you talk to. Um, It depends on who you interact with as to whether you're going to be able to obtain that protection order or not. Um, With law enforcement, certainly, you know, the issue of the police response and whether it it could be discriminatory or biased. So if the police are called when there's an incident, um, how are they going to respond? Are they going to blame the victim? Are they going to not um, attend to the issue? Um, So law law enforcement, again, depending on the community, may or may not be adequately trained and prepared. And then in the criminal court system, um, there are inequities in prosecution and in jury decisions, um, where where we see um, much less um, supportive decisions made for victims in same-sex relationships. Um, And then there's the whole response system of advocacy and emergency shelter. So, you know, just a lot of people, when they think about domestic violence services, they think about emergency shelters. That is one part of really a whole system of care that's been developed for um, survivors of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And historically, these uh, services have really focused on services for cisgender women in heterosexual relationships. So kind of buying into that idea that this is gender-based violence, that women are the the people who are victimized. And most safe houses um, and emergency shelters are women-only spaces. Um, There are very few inclusive services for men, for lesbians, or for trans people. And um, a study that was done in 2011, 62% of lesbians who were seeking services um, in domestic violence advocacy programs were turned away. They were told that these services were not for them. Now, hopefully that's getting better. That's the last time we have data, but um, it's pretty... uh, it's a pretty bad situation. And uh, then we have the whole issue even within the women's movement and within um, sort of lesbian realities of trans women having been historically excluded from women's spaces for not being, quote, real women. Um, and this goes, like, 
way back to sort of the roots of the women's movement, unfortunately. Um, we have had some progress. The Violence Against Women Act um, is, inclus is inclusive. The protections are, are inclusive of LGBTQ people, but the mandates for service are very unclear. And this is the primary funding source for all the advocacy programs throughout the country. So as long, until those mandates become clearer, um, there's not really that impetus to change the way that services are being provided. And there's really minimum to no training for advocates on LGBTQ services. And so even um, if you have a system, uh, you know, you need to prepare the system kind of from the bottom up and from the top down. And right now it's generally not happening, although it ha happens in pockets. So I want to go back to um, that issue that's been touched on a couple of times of, of kind of uh, intersectionality and the multiple layers um, that go in, that contribute to the experience of um, LGBT people managing, dealing with their uh, relationship abuse. Um, and how, at how many levels um, people are experiencing discrimination and how the social stresses really contribute to um, some of those dynamics around needing to assert power and control in what would be a more safe space. So people who feel disempowered look for places is to feel more empowered. And sometimes they develop very dysfunctional ways of expressing their power, asserting their power, etc. And certainly victimizing another individual, particularly your intimate partner, is a dysfunctional way. But when you look at the layers of um, exclusion, bias, abuse, um, and discrimination, it kind of becomes more understandable why we see these dynamics um, in our communities as well. So how do we address these inequities? There's some recommendations for practice and policy. In terms of practice, um, including LGBTQ IPV in IPV-related professional and public education. So here's a start. You know, that we shouldn't be, we, uh, you know, we have uh, every year here, there's a, a, a student-organized domestic violence uh, program. It's a day-long um, uh, workshop or, or conference, and uh, consistently up until recently, there's been no content on uh, IPV in uh, LGBTQ communities. Um, so having inclusive practices, inclusive education, um, advertising specifically, um, explicitly, welcoming LGBTQ people into services, and ensuring that all materials are LGBT-sensitive making sure that there's training that's mandatory for all employees and volunteers of organizations that serve uh, individuals who are victims or survivors of intimate partner violence, um, collaborating with LGBTQ organizations and researchers to develop and, in, and implement inclusive programs. So not, you know, making sure that you bring the population, just as they were talk, uh, Beth was talking about, bringing youth to the table and letting them show us what's the best way to reach them and how they identify and how we should formulate our questions. Um, making sure that uh, advocacy organizations are bringing LGBTQ organizations and researchers into the process of figuring out how to develop and implement inclusive pro uh, programs. And making sure that we ask on an individual level, um, asking individuals about their level of outness and the barriers that they're experiencing to receiving help so that we can make sure that we tailor services to their unique needs. 
On the policy level, um, certainly um, we all have a, a, a obligation, a social obligation to lobby for laws that extend the legal protections to LGBTQ IPV survivors. There's no reason that it should be different. Um, it just wasn't thought through that well when the laws were written. Um, to just support LGBTQ affirming policies in general, um, to advocate that um, the WAVA actually has regulations and mandates that are being followed in DV agencies that, that really bring to the fore the need for inclusiveness with LGBTQ clients, and to adopt additional state and private funding agency policies to regulate the quality of domestic violence services and re really assure that the quality of services is the same for all individuals who are seeking those services, that all individuals are welcome in those services and are well served by those services. So I just want to close by showing you some examples of resources of LGBTQ targeted interventions. Um, I have the, the, um, the honor to work with Futures Without Violence, which is really an incredible uh, organization. Uh, it has its home here in San Francisco. Um, they have an office in D.C. as well, but they're a national organization. used to be called the Family Violence Prevention Fund. Um, and uh, I have worked with them. I started working with them on... Um, programs training healthcare providers. They have a whole initiative um, around involving healthcare providers in um, healthy relationship education and domestic violence and intimate partner violence prevention. And I started working with them with their youth initiatives. Um, and they have developed a series of cards. And I just want to show you, it's this little card because I'm going to show you some of the things off those cards. So th this is the youth one. It's got a pair of sneakers. Um, and they fold out and they have some um, messages on them. And all of them start with sort of uh, assessing relationship quality, how's it going, what are the characteristics of your relationship. And they're like little magazine quizzes. You can ask yourself these questions, you can take it home, you can think about it. Um, providers can use it as a guide for questioning. Um, and then they go through identifying um, characteristics of abusive or coercive relationships, um, talk about resources, and talk about the health impact. So um, they have developed... Um, resources for um, the LGBTQ community. There are specific ones for trans people, which is really unique because, you know, we're so into, like, sticking us all in one pile. Um, and we really have different realities and different needs. Um, so this is a poster that they've developed um, that you can see is, uh, and it, you can see some of the examples um, that are on this poster really speak to issues that um, LGB people might be experiencing. And then this is a sample of the, um, the uh, safety card for uh, LGB people. Um, so you can see, again, sort of giving an outline, you can see the, the kinds of questions that they ask or ask you to ask yourself about um, the quality of your relationship and your concerns in your relationship and then talk about some characteristics of unhealthy relationships. And here you can see this is very much targeted. You can see the examples are specific to um, experiences that um, lesbian, gay, or bisexual individuals might experience. Um, this one's uh, supposed to be trans-inclusive, but they also have a trans-specific one. And so you, I just wanted to, it has, you know, it's a different card. Um, it's specifically targeted to, um, to uh, trans people. 
and um, it gives very specific examples. And then um, each of these cards have resources on the back. Um, and again, just to show you, this is the one that's more general sexual my and gender minority versus the one that's specifically um, oriented towards trans people. And so the re- some of the resources are the same, and some of the resources are different. Um, and so it, I just want I, I included these to really emphasize how important it is that we be very specific. Um, that um, there are many political reasons for us to group ourselves together as sexual and gender minority people, but when it comes to issues of intimate partner violence, um, the nature of the relationship, the dynamics in the relationship, issues in lesbian relationships are not the same as issues in gay male relationships, are not the same as issues in... um, Relationships where there's a trans partner, and so we really need to be specific. And then, just you know, because we are blessed to live in San Francisco, we actually have an organization, Community uh, United Against Violence, which has resources for um, LGBT people um, addressing issues of intimate partner violence. Um, but that is pretty unique. And even when you start going to the links on here, so you know, if you're looking for a domestic violence shelter, the link is Women Inc. Women Inc. You click on that, and there is not anything about lesbian women, about gay men, about trans women. Um, it's there's just nothing there. There's nothing explicit that would make you feel like this is a place I can go. This is a place I could seek shelter. It really looks like it's not for you. So, and um, in case people like to look at the data, there are the references. So, any questions? Yeah. I have a few. Okay. So, um, where would I find a resources for trans, um, trans-friendly health providers? So, adult providers? Yes. That's a great question. So I think the Center for Excellence you know, is um, a, a good place to start. Um, so that's the, the, uh, that's the one that Beth yeah, put up, that website. Maybe if you want to put it up again. Um, that's a good place to start. Um, certainly, you know, asking other people in the community. You know, sometimes there are these kind of hidden gems, so it's not necessarily someone who's in a center for excellence or in a big medical center, um, but, you know, people in the community have found a provider they can relate to, that relate with, that they're comfortable with. And so, you know, you know asking your friends and relatives is never a bad idea either um, if, you know, in terms of looking for trans-friendly services. But the, the center... Center for Excellence in Transgender Health um, is a good place to start. Okay, and then, uh, I'm a provider, mm-hmm. and so um, it's interesting having quite a few um, lesbians and trans starting to come into my practice. That's why I'm here this evening. I want to learn more. Great. And um, just, and you the lack of professional training, and yes, I mean, whenever I look at the professional training within my licensing, there's, I don't see the specifics so of LGBTQ. So any resources around that? So I think that more and more we're seeing some sessions integrated in. So I have t- spoken a couple times at... Um, 
like contraceptive technology, not exactly where you would go, you know, think you're going to go to get content on um, LGBT youth, but um, they've asked me to come and present there about, you know, issues of sexual health and LGBT youth. So often you'll find if you, set, you know, get down into the fine print, you may find sessions um, that address issues. Um, the uh, in terms of domestic violence and intimate partner violence, um, th- uh, Futures Without Violence is a great resource. Uh, they have their national conference will be in San Francisco. It, I think it's this spring. Um, I think it's this spring. The announcement just came out, and I can like see the announcement, but I can't think when exactly it is. Um, but uh, they tend to have good material and training on working with uh, various different uh, minority populations. Uh, they do a lot of work with native populations um, and uh, issues of domestic violence and IPV and, and culturally uh, appropriate approaches to working with populations, um, and there will definitely be sessions on um, working with uh, LGBTQ communities and IPV. And, you know, so did you want to add resource, something? I was just going to mention some other training resources. Um, so, specifically around transgender health, um, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, um, the abbreviation is WPATH. They have a listing of providers, um, and they have also started an educational initiative that's specific around transgender health. Um, They have a February 2017 meeting and training program now around credentialing um, that's happening in L.A. in February. Um, Also, pretty powerful resources, uh, the Fenway Institute um, has lots of videos and um, resources, lectures, and, and whatnot, and they link out to a lot of specific content areas, so um, intimate, partner, intimate partner violence, you know, they have links out, or specific health um, cancer screening. Um, they, I, th- I believe they link to the National LGBT Cancer Network, and so it's a good sort of launching pad to, to other places um, for content-specific uh, information. And, and then um, GLAMA, G-L-M-A, which used to be Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, it's now um, health professionals for LGBT equality or something. They changed it. You know, the, the organization formerly known as um, <laughs> Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, but GLAMA, um, they also have resources as well. Um, uh, could we just thank our speakers for this evening? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.